1: Yo, technology, what is it all about?
2: We test every single employee every day and we don't let new people on sites unless they have been tested or they're wearing full PPE and then internally we don't do any social distancing.
1: Oh, interesting. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How are you all doing? Hopefully staying safe, staying sane. Uh, We are certainly doing our best out here. Uh, And to that end, we bring you yet another pod. And this week, we kind of have an amazing story to tell. So on the program, we have a guy called Fred Turner. He's 25. He's from Yorkshire. And he's the founder of Curative, a company that you have never heard of because it didn't exist until a few months ago. And what Turner does, what uh, Curative does, is COVID testing. In fact, this little startup is now providing more than a quarter of all testing in California. So about 10,000 tests a day and rising pretty rapidly. It's just signed a huge contract with the U.S. Air Force, and amazingly, it's offered its capabilities to the NHS in England more than a month ago, which, of course, you know, the NHS desperately needed and remains in need of tests. But they rejected the offer, weirdly, so we can talk about that. But there's a lot of questions here. How does a company that six weeks ago had nine people ramp up to providing tests for the biggest state in America? How did Fred, who's an Oxford dropout, end up in California in the first place? We will cover all of that, and you'll probably end up feeling a little bad about how much you've accomplished especially in the last, say, couple months, few weeks, Uh, maybe, just a little bit. And the other thing you should know before we get started is that the tests that curative do are not the very uncomfortable typical COVID tests you may have seen, where a PPE'd healthcare worker sticks a swab way back into the recesses of your nose. Instead, it is a quite simple mouth swab. You can do it to yourself, so it's easier and apparently just as accurate. We're gonna cover all of that, including how Fred started his scientific career by creating a genetic testing machine in his basement as a teenager, because, you know, that's what you do as a teenager. i, I built several, obviously. Um, I think you'll find this interesting, entertaining, and provide you a little bit of hope, at least about testing what is possible, what is happening on the ground And obviously, testing is an important way out of this whole mess, Um, so hopefully you'll come out of this feeling a little bit better about the direction things are moving. So, without any further ado, I give you Fred Turner of Curative. Enjoy. How are you doing? (laughs) It sounds like you have some very long days.
2: Yeah, pretty much every day right now is 16 to
1: 20 hours. I thought it would be useful just to talk about what you're doing right now, like in terms of testing, what Curative is doing, kind of what you're spending your days doing, and then we can kind of go backwards and then kind of come full circle, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, so right now, while I am in Washington, D.C., uh, we set up our second lab location out here. And right now we're figuring out how to – well, we're scaling this lab up. We had our first 40 employees here that are going to get trained this week on all the lab processes. We've got a whole bunch of robots coming in this week. It's a lot easier to set a lab up the second time around. And then we're figuring out ground game for deployment. I think in LA, we have had a great opportunity to work with the city of LA and the county of LA, and they've done a lot of the the deployment in terms of how do you actually get the test kit to someone and get it back again. And what we've seen is that there's an enormous amount of infrastructure that has been built there in in LA that doesn't yet exist in a lot of the rest of the country. And so now we're figuring out, okay, we're going to have, we already have enormous amounts of capacity now. How do we actually deploy those tests to people in a useful manner where we can rapidly test tens of thousands of people per day?
1: So how many people are being tested with the curative test today?
2: Yeah, right now we're up to about
1: 10,000 per day. Most of that is coming through Southern California. How old is Curative, your company that's doing this?
2: The company has been around since January, but it's been doing COVID testing for about seven weeks now.
1: So can you explain, because obviously everybody knows that testing is a big issue. It's a big bottleneck and it's kind of a key to kind of moving beyond this lockdown shelter in place type situation where we are now. Can you explain why you have guys have been able to go from zero to 10,000 a day in seven weeks? Like, like, what are you doing?
2: (laughs) Hiring really quickly, moving like a startup. Uh, As we passed 200 people a few days ago, up from nine people seven weeks ago. So having really good, like execution on the operations side to just onboard that many people that fast across multiple locations
1: How do you even do that though? Nine to 207 weeks in the midst of a pandemic and everything else, that just seems, it seems an impossibility just to kind of say it out loud.
2: Well, there is no shortage of candidate flow right now, right? There's a lot of very talented people that are, if not laid off, are are furloughed and would rather come and work on COVID to try to get the world back to normal. So it's been uh, more a case of how do you screen people that fast and how do you onboard people that fast? And in terms of screening people, we do a lot of just getting them in for a day to, to do the task or something similar in a way where if it goes wrong, it's not harmful. Just trying them out in the role and seeing how people perform. It's a much faster way of interviewing in the long run than actually interviewing. A lot of getting really smart, talented people in and then moving them around internally to wherever their strong suit is, as we sort of learn that, and just sort of constantly looking for new talent.
1: So can you talk about the test though? Because the test is different. You know, I think every or a lot of people have seen by now something on Twitter or social media of the the test that everybody knows with the super long Q-tip going, like kind of poking the back of your brain and it's extremely uncomfortable and which is one of the reasons why this is difficult. What are you guys doing that's different?
2: Yeah, so we're doing what we call an oral fluid swab sample, uh, which is slightly different from a saliva sample in that first the individual coughs that releases virus from the lungs that gets caught in the saliva is also already virus in the saliva. The person then swabs the inside of their mouth like they're brushing their teeth, sort of around their gums, across their tongue, in their cheeks and the roof of their mouth. And then they put the swab in a tube, seal it up and send it back.
1: You can do it to yourself?
2: Yes, it's self-collected. That's kind of the key. There's obviously the whole piece around preference, Nobody really wants to have a piece of plastic shoved three inches up their nose. So people do prefer this. But, but I think the bigger part of it is just the, the logistics of actually getting tests to people is really important. You can't just solve the supply chain and have lots of tests. You have to be able to actually do them. And the NP swabs are problematic because they need a, an experienced healthcare worker to physically touch the patient in order mm-hmm. to actually administer the swab. And So you then you need a whole bunch of these trained healthcare workers which means they're not doing anything else. You need them to touch patients which means they're potentially being exposed and you need them to change PPE every time they're doing a test which means you're burning through PPE at a crazy rate. With the self-collected method it is dramatically easier. The way we do this in LA is with the uh, drive-through model where people basically drive up, they're handed a kit through the car window. Someone gives them instructions, but from a safe distance. They watch a video online in advance that tells them how to do the test. They self-administer in their car. They drive up to the exit and they drop the kit in a bin. At the end of the day, that bin gets shipped to us at the lab. The entire process is just dramatically simpler. And so we've seen these drive throughs can scale to about 800 per day, whereas the NP swabs, you're looking at about 100 to 150 per day.
1: NP is nasal, nasal pharyngeal. Nasopharyngeal, yes and are you guys the only ones doing this or is it you know because i know there's kind of a lot of drive-through clinics popping up in countries around the world is this the way that is being done throughout the world and you guys are just one of them or is this something that is unique is, yeah there
2: are a lot approach. of drive-through tests but most of them are using the nasopharyngeal swaps. swabs and so their productivity is reduced and they're using up ppe
1: how accurate is this compared to those other ones
2: yeah, in a clinical study that we ran in uh, collaboration with UCLA, we demonstrated that it's at least as sensitive as the NP swaps.
1: And what does that mean in, in number terms, in terms of accuracy? 89.7% was the
2: clinical sensitivity measured in that study, as compared to about 79% for the nasopharyngeal swabs. So we true. don't have the numbers to say that it's better.
1: This is, you know, all these studies... That sounds now better. <laughs>
2: It sounds better, but statistically, uh, we have the data to say that it's at least as good.
1: Just to understand, you, so you are doing this in the county of LA and doing most of the testing there. Is that accurate?
2: Yes. So with both the, the county and the city of LA.
1: Right. And then you are also just signed this deal with the US Air Force, which is why you're in DC. Yeah. And who are you testing there?
2: The... DC Lab is going to be doing testing both for the Air Force, but also some of the East Coast states.
1: So you're doing this stuff for the Air Force for LA city and county, which is whatever, eight or 10 million people. If we just rewind seven weeks, how did you end up here?
2: Yeah, well, initially, I'd been sort of staying out of it and um, had assumed that the existing diagnostic companies and labs and, and government would be able to just sort of deal with the scale up and they would all be fine. And then I guess it was a Sunday evening about seven weeks ago where it was just chatting with some, some friends about it on a Sunday afternoon in my, in my apartment and
1: on a zoom or were you guys six as uh, a sensible six feet apart? This was back when being <laughs> a sensible
2: six feet apart wasn't, wasn't cool yet. <laughs> right,
1: right.
2: <laughs> and, uh, and we, we're just sort of chatting and I started looking at, into some of the numbers a bit more about what kind of testing scale would be needed. And having you know, been working in diagnostics for the past several years and had been running a clinical lab, it became pretty apparent that the existing supply chain had maybe plus or 5 to 10% of flex, and not very much more than that, and that we were going to probably need 10 to 100x. Clearly, that wasn't going to happen without some new, new ways of doing things. Um, or, or being a bit more flexible, and so the team uh, at Curative was working on sepsis diagnostics and uh, ways to rapidly diagnose and treat sepsis. But the background of the team is very much used to building infectious disease diagnostic tests, and so we all sat down on Monday morning and said, you know, maybe this COVID thing is going to be a bigger deal than we thought. We should probably put our put ourselves to work looking into it. And uh, by Wednesday of that week, I had found a clinical lab that was large enough to actually run the tests. That was Culver that's in LA. And the, the team was up until this point based in Menlo Park. So we moved down to LA by that Friday, began validating the test on Saturday and launched it on Monday.
1: So you all just left the Bay Area on Wednesday.
2: Yeah, um, what did help is that uh, Vlad, our, our chief scientific officer, had been a little worried about COVID for the past sort of two weeks before that and had built a prototype of the test in his spare time so that he could test himself, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's this what I'm, uh, I mean about team, uh, is we have people like Vlad who do things like that. Give gave us a bit of a head start. It needed a lot of um, sort of beefing up and, uh, and reinforcement to to get to scale. But we started hiring... That Monday, and I think we were fifty some people within about a week.
1: Where is the money coming from for this? Because it sounds like you're a nine-person startup. You you move in the space of a few days to a new city, and you're hiring forty or fifty people within days. I mean, that all sounds very expensive.
2: Yeah, it, it was definitely pretty expensive. So we had raised some venture capital money already for the sepsis diagnostic, and luckily we had very supportive investors who were okay with us spending that initial amount of money on COVID testing. And then we also found you know, in the LA area, the city, county, um, and a few other government organizations down there, the local sheriff and fire department, were very keen to get started testing their people immediately. And moved incredibly quickly to make that happen and to make sure that they could pay upfront so that we could scale. And you know, governments are not known for moving quickly to pay startups. But I think that the speed at which the local government moved in LA to enable us to get paid so that we could scale was definitely a key factor.
1: Where in that process did you get FDA approval? And was that necessary before you actually started testing people?
2: It was about three weeks after that. So the way the regulatory pathway that the FDA has set up basically allows labs to do an internal validation submit that to the FDA and then begin testing immediately whilst the FDA reviews that. And this sort of comes from the viewpoint that usually the FDA doesn't actually regulate these kind of tests. These tests that are called lab developed tests or LDTs that are designed in a single lab and then run in that lab. Usually the FDA doesn't actually regulate those. They're regulated by CMS, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And so the FDA, in an effort to ensure that in a pandemic, tests are accurate, stepped in to begin regulating them. But in order to allow things to go quickly, once you have passed the, uh, the standard bar that CMS sets out for clear labs, you're allowed to begin testing whilst the FDA reviews the data.
1: And that venture capital back, that was DCVC? The initial investment came from Chris Anderson. Why do I know that
2: name? He runs TED Talks. Chris and a a few friends were the ones that initially backed uh, me and the the company and then were very supportive of us working on trying to help with COVID. And then DCVC came in about a week after we moved down to LA.
1: So can we go way back, way back? Because I detect uh, your accent and I've seen some videos where you had a stronger accent, but it has faded your yorkshire ac- accent has faded <laughs>
2: yeah, these, these americans have changed me
1: <laughs> can you just give a, a kind of a brief potted history of you know kind of where you grew up in the uk and how you ended up out and on these fair shores
2: Yes, yeah, so i grew up in a little town called Brighouse in west yorkshire for for my entire life went to school there went to college in oxford Ended up dropping out after two years to work on a startup that I'd been doing alongside that that was actually based in, in Batley, which is a typical place for biotech startups to be based in, uh, in England, as you'll know. Uh, and that was working on agri- <laughs> agricultural genomics, testing dairy and beef cows to predict
1: how much milk they would produce. Can I ask why of all the things you decided you wanted to work on that?
2: Well, I, so I had built this PCR machine in my parents' basement, mostly because I wanted to be able to test myself and no one would let me in a lab. This was when I was about 15.
1: Why did you want to test yourself?
2: It It just seemed interesting. Way back when I read Craig Venter's autobiography and where he sequences his genome, and I was like, I should sequence my genome, but then I couldn't get into a lab to actually do that. So I started just building the machines that you need to do that kind of testing, built the PCR machine,
1: sorry this is just because it's so foreign to me how would you go about building your own PCR machine did you I mean there was probably some you some stuff on YouTube maybe I mean I, or do you, I mean how do you go about that
2: um not really on YouTube there are certainly <laughs> there's certainly groups of people online um, like hackers and there's this group DIY bio that have done a lot of experimenting around building these things at home at, well less less at home but building them for cheap And so there was a community out there of of people working on similar things and just a lot of reading things, reading papers, playing around with electronics.
1: And it worked? Yes. How long did it take you to build?
2: Uh, It took about nine months because this was just me in my bedroom as a teenager after school. (laughs) Got you.
1: (laughs) I mean, if I was building a PCR machine, it would definitely only take me six months. (laughs) I know.
2: Next time I'll do it faster.
1: So you did it. You tested yourself. Did you find anything interesting?
2: Well, we did this uh, interesting little project looking at the ginger gene.
1: I'm ginger. I'm the only ginger in my family. So I'm, that's interesting.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm not ginger, but my brother is and my mom is. And you can see the exact mutation that causes uh, him to be ginger and me not to be. You found it. Yes.
1: Right. So you build a PCR machine. You finish high school, as we say out here. And then you ended up at Oxford, and you were th- and then you dropped out.
2: Yes, well, the cattle stuff all started about the same time as I started Oxford, and it was ongoing for the two years that I was there.
1: Is there any reason why you decided to look at cattle? Uh, <laughs> after <laughs> the, the PCR
2: machine, I, I won uh, the national science and en- engineering competition with that, and there was a little bit of of press after that and this farmer reached out because he wanted to test his cows and initially i was sort of not not very interested in cows but then he kind of got me hooked and explained why this was important and why it was interesting and why lots of other people wanted to test their cows and then he started sending me samples and i ran them and and he seemed amazed that i could just run them and get him the results in 24 hours he'd been sending them to the netherlands and wasting three months and paying a ton of money and i was could run them in 24 hours that was admittedly because i was running five of them at once but it seemed like uh there was this sort of nascent market of more technical farmers that wanted to understand the genetics of the animals they were raising
1: to perhaps guide the their breeding breeding
2: management health lots of different aspects of it yes
1: so you s- dropped out to kind of do that full-time yes and then did in the UK for about another
2: six months after dropping out, then applied to Y Combinator, got into that, moved to California. San Francisco? I oh, actually moved to San Jose. So did that for about another year and a half after that. And then, unfortunately, there aren't enough cows in the world to make that a venture <laughs> scale business. And the number right. of cows is declining as well. So it's Isn't not, it? Even a, not even a growing market
1: how is that possible everybody, everybody loves a hamburger
2: yeah the, everybody loves hamburgers but the impossible burgers are coming everybody's mm. a, ve- a vegan
1: people eat less meat are you carnivorous or are you um are you on the impossible train
2: i i am carnivorous but the impossible burger is good
1: it is good right so you did that and then you realized this was not a goer
2: yeah, so we pivoted the entire company to be an STD testing company.
1: Cattle to STDs. I love it. Yeah,
2: so in the meantime, we we basically built out a whole bunch of technology around faster, cheaper genetic testing. And we were looking for where, where was there a gap where that needed to be applied. And STDs, and specifically, uh, as the antibiotic resistance in STDs and in bacteria in general, seemed to be this area nobody was really... Nobody really had a good solution. It was just sort of, well, antibiotic resistance is a problem and people should do something about it. Sort of very, very global warming type vibe of obviously it's a problem, but we'll just talk about it being a problem. And then it seemed like if you could test for that, that would probably be at least a start.
1: I'm sure I'm being thick here, but antibiotic resistance in STDs, like what? Yes, it
2: was specifically uh, resistance in gonorrhea, which is this crazy case study where it's become resistant to basically every single antibiotic that we've thrown at it over the last like 80 years. Really? One by one, one it becomes resistant every 15 years or so. And then we move on to something stronger. And that's that's sort of been fine, except now we've run out. Really? Yep. So we went from uh, in 2001... We went from the first time having to go from uh, ciprofloxacin to cefixime, which is a much stronger drug. And then in 2013, finally moved from being able to give an oral pill to an injection. And now we're starting to see resistance to the injection, ceftraxone, And the next step up is ertapenem, which is either a series of injections over multiple days or more likely hospitalization. The idea was let's try to head this off in advance by finding, uh, because the reason we stop using some of the simpler drugs is they only work, say, 70% of the time. And so if you're a doctor, you're not going to prescribe a drug if it only works 70% of the time. Very sensible. Definitely, that's how it should be. But if you have a tool that says, in this one instance, we know 100% that this drug will work, suddenly all these past drugs are back on the table as candidates.
1: I see. I see. Right, so you don't have to cycle through eight different therapies before you get the one that's where that hits pay dirt. Yes. Got you.
2: worked pretty nicely, and this was Shield Diagnostics, and we built out a clinical lab and scaled it pretty far, actually, to about 10. We did several, several tens of thousands of tests, hit sort of two brick walls. One was a funding brick wall with an investor who pulled out at the very last minute uh, to fund the next phase of that, which was the uh, the sepsis piece, and then the other brick wall is the U.S. insurance business. Oh, uh, they're designed to not pay you any money for a test that you do.
1: So yeah, I mean, we're still wrestling with our insurance company. 18 months after we had our child, they're still sell- sending us random unexplained bills. So. I understand. It's, it seems to be a system kind of built to obfuscate and extract money any way it can.
2: Yeah, it's the sort of bizarre thing where you send them a bill for 90 and then they just send you a check for $31. And you're like, how the <laughs> hell did you come up with that number? And also, how does that even work? You can't go into a store, pick up a sandwich and say, it's $4, but I'm going to give you $1 and then I'm just going to leave. But actually, yeah. I don't, I don't take safe way. So I'm just going to have it for free.
1: Right. So you decided that wasn't perhaps a, the easiest business model to pursue.
2: Yes. So that company got shut down at the end of last year.
1: And then you created Curative to do sepsis testing.
2: So Curative was going to be a slightly different business model of testing where we were going to, and hopefully at some point still will, get, get back to it at some point, essentially build out a whole care model for sepsis centered around a better diagnostic where the idea is if you can, instead of just providing a better technology for the test and not really giving people an opportunity to use it, basically align all the incentives so that you take full financial responsibility for a patient, get them a better test result, get a better outcome and then actually get paid for it. Then it would align everything. And at least for this one indication of sepsis that does affect 1.7 million Americans a year, and kill 300,000, you could get the incentives of innovation and healthcare to be at least vaguely aligned.
1: And what type of sepsis are you focused on? I don't even know if that's the right way to ask that question. But um, is it sepsis people get once they're in the hospital? Or is there a certain kind of pathogen that causes the sepsis you're talking about? Yes,
2: yeah, so the sepsis is just the body's inappropriate response to a bacterial infection of the blood. That's what makes it very difficult from a diagnostic standpoint is it can be any bacteria. And so you have obviously some common bacteria, but then you have this incredibly long tail of many other bacteria that could be causing that sepsis. That's what we were doing right right up until seven weeks ago
1: when COVID hit. Do you come from a scientific family? Are you kind of a one-off in your family?
2: It's a pretty technical family. My
1: dad has a maths and
2: physics degree. My mom has a mechanical engineering degree. Neither of them worked as scientists or... Really, doing very much technical, but always did a lot of science and experiments growing up.
1: Oh, you had a, like one of those houses where there was people doing like things bubbling in the background.
2: Yeah, yeah, like built an electric motor with my dad as a kid and other cool little projects like that.
1: Is your brother in the sciences as well? No, my brother went completely
2: the opposite direction. He he runs a recording studio and is uh, very musical.
1: Oh, cool! Yeah. And so here you are. It's seven weeks in. You're doing. Ten thousand tests a day where do you see this being i don't know a month two months three months from now
2: yeah i think we need to go at least another 10x it's pretty clear that in the us we need to be doing several hundred thousand if not a few million tests per day and that at this point the existing supply chain and infrastructure that exists could probably support a few hundred thousand and not much more i think the model that we've built in la works very nicely they're now Scaling up to testing, offering a free test to anybody who lives in the LA area, which is getting beyond ten thousand per day now.
1: And is that the is the city paying for those tests then? Yes, and so I think we want to take that
2: model both in terms of the infrastructure of actually doing the collection with the drive-throughs, uh, which the city and, and county have really pioneered. We've built out various bits of software to to help with that and the way that we've scaled out the lab and take that to other cities and states across the US to provide the testing infrastructure that's going to be required to actually get people back to work.
1: Do you think it's realistic that in a few months, Curative could be doing, say, 100,000 tests a day? Yeah, our next
2: goal is a million per week, aiming for by the end of May. Oh, wow, four weeks from now. Yeah, I think the real limitation is going to be the logistics of deploying that many tests
1: and presumably you're talking to other states and cities and counties and whatnot we are yes
2: what happened with britain uh we submitted a a request for for testing providers they, they put up a form uh they said reach out if you've got something new f- fill in all this information
1: was this just like an nhs website nhsx website or something
2: yeah, we'd reached out to some, uh, some people out there and they said, oh, we're, we're not accepting like random reach outs to go through this official application process. So we put in all the information, we put in all the FDA authorization, we gave them all the testing capacity and then we just basically got this email response back from sort of nondescript email address saying, oh, we're, we're not interested, we're no longer accepting testing proposals.
1: When was that? That was
2: about four weeks ago now.
1: So when you submitted it, you as had already had the FDA, FDA approval.
2: Uh, I forget exactly the overlap between those dates, but I believe so.
1: So it was kind of a computer says no type response. Yeah. That's weird. Obviously, given that what's happening in the UK, I think I was reading today, they're at 75,000 tests a day and their goal was 100,000 by now. Have you heard anything since or had any got any more color as to why they said no? We have
2: not heard anything official since. I know there's been a few conversations about getting some specific approval that they're, that they're looking for, but there haven't been any high-level requests for more testing. And we are currently producing 50,000 test kits per day. So we've certainly got some spare capacity if, uh, if
1: anyone is looking for it. You're making 50,000 test kits a day currently? Yes. How? <laughs> You're a seven-week-old company. How's that even work, just logistically?
2: We have three three production plants in California.
1: And were these plants that basically you can buy space in, effectively? Uh,
2: two of them are existing, yeah, contract manufacturers where they just hire a ton of people and get the process spun up rapidly for putting the kits together. What, one of them is just a, another little startup that has spun this up, uh, producing the kits for us in a matter of weeks and scaled to making tens of thousands of them per day.
1: What's uh, what's the name of that one? Vector One. They're doing
2: the, some of the assembly work for us.
1: And the test kit is basically some kind of less scary looking swab, a test tube, and a plastic bag?
2: Essentially, yeah, the instruction kit, there are a couple of other bits that are required to legally put it through the mail to make sure that it's it's safe to put a potentially COVID-containing sample through the mail so it has to deactivate the virus has to stabilize it for room temperature transport. We have done all of the sourcing of the various components that go into that, which has obviously been one of the key challenges. Um, And we have built out, uh, we call it an orthogonal supply chain, where we're essentially finding sources of material that are not being used for COVID testing right now, but where they're essentially the same as something that is being used, and we can validate that it works just as well, and then use that in the kit. So for swabs, for example, we've used a swab type that isn't normally used for diagnostic testing. It's normally used to test clean rooms. And we validated that it does work as well Mm. as the standard swab. And there are a million of them being produced a week that previously were not being used for COVID testing.
1: That were just being produced a million per week, just as a kind of matter of course.
2: Yeah, exactly. So we've done this in a number of different places. That's kind of the easiest example, but a lot of the components that are limiting to other test producers, we've found alternative ways of producing the material or getting around that step in order to uh, make the supply chain not the limiting factor. And I think the other important piece to that is we don't want to be fighting with other labs or diagnostic companies for the same number of pieces that go into the test. Because if it's a zero-sum game, there's not
1: really much point. So you're tapping into new supply chains, basically. Right. We really wanted to make sure that we're
2: bringing on actual new supply of kits and tests and not just fighting over kits and tests with other labs.
1: I know initially reagents was an issue. Is that kind of bottleneck been sorted out? Are you, in other words, are, and are you basically, do you, do you have to use those same reagents?
2: We're making some of the reagents and other reagents have not been a supply issue.
1: Do you ever have moments, because I was like, I've talked to a lot of people uh, in the kind of the PPE world who are doing similar things, just kind of diving into something they really knew nothing about even six weeks ago. A lot of people describe having this kind of moment where you kind of look around and be like, how is it that I'm the person doing this? Have you had any of those moments where you kind of like, why am I here doing this right now?
2: Oh, I think I'm, I'm fairly well suited for this. <laughs>
1: I've been looking around and like wondering
2: why we don't have a whole bunch of other people trying to do the exact same thing. Like, where are the other labs doing testing?
1: And what is it? I mean, do you have any sense of, you know, why things are so behind just in terms of from your view of where you are, like on the coalface, so to speak?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a significant component of just um, sort of culture clash where Typically, you want clinical labs to run really slowly and involve a lot of paperwork, because normally, that means you get very high quality results, and it's locked down, you know exactly what you're getting, And that's fine, unless you're in a pandemic. You still want quality to be the number one most important thing. You have to think about things in a different way that most diagnostic people and clinical lab people are not used to sort of thinking that way. Yes, we can hire 200 people in seven weeks if we put our minds to it. We can find another source of swabs if our validated swab provider says that they're out. We don't just wait for more swabs to arrive. And just sort of that mentality shift, I think, is probably the biggest reason. It is interesting to me why there has been not been more movement. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Uh, 19, maybe 20.
1: Did you think you were going to stay? Yeah. You did? Yeah.
2: Why? I think people think differently out here about risk and building new things and sort of just taking a chance on building something new in a way that I never saw in England.
1: And has that held true since you've been out here? Definitely. I mean, I don't think you could
2: build this kind of company at the age of twenty-five in England. The mentality in the US is well, if you can show that the tests work and you can make them, then we don't really care. Right? It's about executing. And if actually we can produce a test and we can run clinical studies and we can prove that the test works, we can prove that we can do it at the scale, which I think, you know, we've we've definitely done in, in LA at this point, then that's what people are focused on. And they're not focused on the the usual credentials of being a professor at some university.
1: Uh, has Paul Graham invested in this?
2: He has not.
1: But is a, is he still part of, I don't know, your kind of network of people that when you need help, you really? He was out
2: of running YC by the time. I was yeah. That's but I still talk to uh, other YC partners fairly frequently.
1: So Curative Now was in Menlo Park, but it is now based in LA
2: we still technically have an office in menlo park right so
1: where are you living right now
2: i am living in an airbnb in san dimas in la oh oh i see oh cool which is is an upgrade from the motel (laughs) six
1: is that where you were before that's where we started oh when you moved from la from menlo park to la yeah how long were you at the motel six
2: probably the first two weeks
1: Oh wow, so you were really living it up.
2: Yeah, and then we upgraded to the holiday inn.
1: Oh, very nice. <laughs> it's very upscale.
2: And then we finally
1: upgraded to an Airbnb. Got you. And are you guys all living there the a bunch of you? Yeah. The other thing I was going to ask is like in terms of the funding, I was talking to somebody who funded a company and they're like, yeah, I saw this company, saw what they were doing, spent two days going due diligence and then just gave them wrote them a big check. And he's like, I would never do this in normal circumstances, but these aren't normal circumstances. How was, how was it You know, raising, I presume, decently large amounts of money um, in this environment? Was it kind of, did you know the people already? Did you know DCVC or how did that work? Yeah, I
2: didn't know DCVC at all beforehand. They were very similar. They were like, this is not about money. We just have to do something. We have to save the world. We have to like get tests out there. Uh, and they, you know, they did the the standard diligence that they like, need to do, but it really yeah. Yeah, took a couple of days. And then they just wrote the check. We saw a pretty, pretty similar process from uh, several different investors. Some of them um, I'd known before, like Chris who invested in my last company. Some of them were completely new, but it was certainly a, <laughs> a unique fundraising experience.
1: <laughs> uh, how much did you raise? Or can you say?
2: Uh, we raised a few million in that first round. It we it didn't take very much to actually get things going, because you you know we're we're producing a lot and selling a large number of tests. Um, that's what has really. Uh,
1: you have a you have product market fit, as it were.
2: Right, You sell something to people and they they pay with money. It's uh, how businesses are supposed to work.
1: <laughs> is there anything else happening out there in the world in the world of COVID that we haven't covered that is, kind of interesting or something that you found surprising or when you got involved you're like i just can't believe this is the way it is or isn't
2: well there's all the vaccine stuff but that's a much bigger topic of conversation <laughs> uh just i never really looked at them in a lot of detail before but just understanding because in the diagnostic side you can you can make things go faster with sort of innovative ways of doing things but when you're putting a vaccine together you fundamentally just have to put it in a person and find out whether it works and Mm. leave leave them for a period of time to see whether it's safe or not and you can't speed those things up and so that's
1: well i've been very i've been very struck by when all of and i don't know how much of this is based in science and how much of this is based on optimism and like you know kind of hoping against hope but there's been this broad optimism around, oh, in 12 to 18 months, we're going to have a vaccine when in the history of humanity, we've never done that in shorter than four years. And there's 100 different vaccine processes going on. There just seems to be this broad consensus that we're just going to have this kind of sorted in 18 months. And that that logic somehow doesn't make sense to me. But maybe that's just because I don't know what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, there is there is some reasons to be optimistic on that time frame, um, but also biology is just hard. And when you're doing something that's not been done before, uh, you can't make any promises. And so, I think there needs to be a backup plan.
1: Yeah, herd immunity. That's it's not you're... a backup plan. No, as, as we're seeing so very, very tragically now in the UK, it's just testing. It's...
2: Testing has really got to be the backup plan.
1: The la- the last question I had was just I-, I forgot to ask earlier. How did you get hooked up with the Air Force?
2: Uh, That was through a group called Gothams that we've been working closely with. Uh, They're connected with DCVC and they have a lot of experience doing military contracting and basically bringing startups to the military to uh, fill unmet needs.
1: Gothams, as in where Batman saves people.
2: With an S on the end. They're a, a small group that have a ton of experience in the area. (laughs) yeah the only only other thing i'd mention you just sort of reminded me on is the employee testing thing which is probably an interesting bit to cover so we test in terms of like demonstrating that testing can actually be useful Mm. we test every single employee every day and we don't let new people on site unless they have been tested or they're wearing full ppe and then internally we don't do any social distancing
1: oh interesting
2: and we've picked up three cases of COVID at interview and isolated, quarantined those people, tested them again until they were negative and then reintroduced them into the workforce. And we have not seen any internal spread of COVID despite onboarding 200 people. Wow. Because that's allowed us to move very fast because we've not had to implement. You know, obviously we're not, you know, we try to be sensible in having some basic social distancing that can be done easily. But I think we've been able to be a lot more flexible because of having a secured environment where we have a closed location where we control very carefully who is on site and who is not on site and when they were last tested.
1: How quickly? So, I don't know, do you have somebody at the door with a, or does everybody have to show up with their swab and then wait for the results before they walk in the door?
2: Test kits at the door and you can't get into the building without getting swabbed.
1: So, I do my swab, I hand my little thing over how long does it take before I get my result?
2: So it's it's twenty-four hours. So you have to come the day before, get swabbed first, and then you have to refresh your swab every twenty-four hours effectively. And so we've seen that protocol, we've done about four and a half thousand employee tests now. And we've seen that work very effectively for keeping us safe. And that's obviously the most extreme version of testing. This is just test everybody every day, which is not feasible to do that across an entire country. It demonstrates that there is a spectrum you don't have to it's not just you know oh, we do a tiny bit of testing there is a spectrum between test everybody and test no one and on one end of the spectrum it does work very well now we just need to calibrate how far up the spectrum are we willing to go
1: those tests have to be analyzed in a, in a CLIA lab yes great well look I really appreciate you taking the time especially at this uh, ridiculously late hour I will let you sleep but thank you it's super interesting good luck with it <laughs> And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Fred for taking the time. I want to thank you guys for listening, for rating, for reviewing, and most importantly, for subscribing to our very fine publication, The Times and Sunday Times. Because as I've been saying now for the last couple months, we need more people paying for what we do. Because... (laughs) Things are pretty brutal out there, um, especially for newspapers and lots of other industries. So every little helps. Take a moment. If you feel so inclined, sign up for the Sunday Times or the Times. It's all the same. We'd really appreciate it. I certainly would. And aside from that, stay safe, stay sane, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.